Hey, this is Bob Reynolds, saxophonist with Snarky Puppy, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Ryan Shore, a three-time Emmy and Grammy-nominated composer, songwriter, music producer, music director, and conductor. There's nothing this man can't do. He's known for his scores for numerous animated series and films, including the Star Wars animated series, Scooby-Doo films, The Not Too Late Show with Elmo, and Go Go, Corey Carson. We'll talk about a bunch of these. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Ryan and I are going to do what I call a song fest. I've asked him to give me a handful of some of his best works. We'll play a little bit. We'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories and stuff that nobody else knows. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know, if you're a regular listener, that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen a song that I wrote called Cousins from the album PGS7 by my band Project Grand Slam. This one's a bit of a stretch, but follow me. Ryan is known for his work in animated series, which of course are favored by children. And Cousins is a song that I wrote for my grandkids. And it happens to be one of my most streamed songs. So I thought that it worked. So Ryan Shore, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you so much for having me on, Robert. It's great to be with you. So I got to ask the question. I mean, you got into animated stuff, and we'll talk about that later. But I'm assuming, did you watch a lot of cartoons when you were a kid? I did. I, I think that I probably watched a similar amount to maybe anybody else. You know, I watched Looney Tunes. I watched tons of different programs. But I never really thought that I would go into writing music for cartoons or animation. I just loved them growing up. You know, back in the day, and I'm dating myself here, the cartoons used to have these great theme songs. Okay? I'm talking about the Flintstones, for example. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. And the Jetsons. Meet George Jetson. His boy, Elroy. They had these great theme songs. And no matter where you were, no matter where in the world you were from, everybody knew these songs. Yes. Do they still do that? They do. However, you know, when I think about those iconic songs, you know, the ones you just mentioned, I wonder how many are like that. Yeah, I'm sure there are some, but uh, I, I wonder if perhaps those, I mean, those are such iconic shows. Maybe they've really stood with us because those shows went on for a while and they've become part of, like the shows themselves have become part of our culture. And so maybe that the songs go along with it. But uh, I love theme songs like that. To me, it's like the 
the call, you know, it's the idea that when you're in the kitchen and then that uh, TV show comes on in the living room and you can just hear the theme song from the other room and you go, oh, that show is on. So I, I'm a huge fan of that. I never understood why they kind of got away from theme songs because all the television shows used to have theme songs, okay? And there was a big industry, as you probably know, of musicians that wrote for this stuff, okay? You know, for commercials and ads and theme song music. And that whole area has died down as well. Why do you think they got away from this? I think, I can't say for sure, but I know that in television, outside of animation and cartoons, they've also gotten rid of the main titles from a lot of TV shows. And I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that people tend to binge watch shows and they want to just get right into the programming. So, you know, they just, instead of doing a main title at the top, you just go right into what the show is and show a few minutes of it, get people roped in. And then maybe they'll do a main title sequence. Maybe it's shortened. But nowadays you can kind of, you know, skip right through it if you're watching on, on streaming. So I don't know. I guess they, people made a decision that is better just to get right to the programming and rope people in rather than having them, you know, have to listen to something for 30 seconds or longer. I'm not sure. They probably didn't want to have to pay royalties either. <laughs> there might be some of that. I'm sure. All right. So I understand you grew up in Canada or originally from Canada, but you grew up in Florida. Am I right? That's right. I was born in Toronto, moved to Boca Raton, Florida when I was four years old. Okay. Well, you couldn't have gone from one of the more colder places on earth, at least civilized places, <laughs> to one of the hottest places on earth by doing that. Good for you. Did you get started as a musician early on? Did you do it yourself? Did your parents push you into it? Tell me how you got to be a musician. You know, I have to tell you that the fact that I'm a musician and that I write music for picture is really bizarre when you consider my background. <laughs> Why is that? Because I remember when I was a kid and my mom would take me around on her errands, you know, going to the grocery store and the dry cleaner and stuff. And I'd hear music, you know, on the speakers. I wasn't really listening to the music at that point. It was really just, you know, atmospheric things, you know, things you would just hear. It was just, and I remember once telling my brother, making an argument as to why the world does not need music. You're kidding. I mean, it's bizarre, like that, that, that I was a kid and I was trying to make that argument because to me, it was just like music that was just on speakers in the background. And then the other thing that that's really bizarre for me is that I really loved playing outside. When I was a kid, I loved riding my bike. I loved going to the mall. I I had a go-kart. I loved riding the go-kart. And I liked bowling. I liked just doing things. And so the idea of sitting in a theater, in a darkened theater for two hours, wasn't really like a high priority for me when I was a kid. So the fact that now I write music and I do it for picture, is it's it's crazy uh how how life changes but i got into music when i was you know uh, around 11 years old so it was a little later for me i gotta understand this when you're a kid okay you, you didn't like music to begin with you're in the mall you didn't understand why they're playing the music in the mall what were the bands what were the artists that you were listening to when you were growing up well the artists that i really loved when i was growing up was probably things that were popular on the radio i immediately gravitated towards like R&B and soul and um, I don't know, you know, uh, Stevie Wonder and, and uh, 
I remember the first time I heard Diana Ross's Upside Down. I mean, just like it was just such infectious music. So the music that I really dug was was a lot of that. But but when I was growing up, it was the 1980s. And so all of those bands from the 80s were so popular. Michael Jackson and, and Madonna and you know, all, all of them. Did you like those bands, the guys with the big hair? I keep, you know, that wasn't my era, but I understand that big hair bands in the 80s were really big. I, I don't know if I was any extra fan of, of like, you know, hair rock bands. But I will say this. I remember when when I was growing up and, I, and those bands were popular. And it seemed as though those bands were like so hard edged and, you know, going against the grain and, and uh you know, just um, what's we're looking for, like when something fights against something, you know, it's, and now I go back and I listen to all of that. And it's, it seems so tame, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it, it doesn't seem so, you know, hard, not so it's, outrageous, not so outrageous. All right. So you're a kid that didn't like music. You're living in Florida. You like to play outside. I'm waiting for this transition. When did you become a musician? How did that happen? Okay. So when I was 11, I took an interest in saxophone. I don't know why. I mean, I can tell you why. Um, so there were a few inspirations that I had. A lot of them are going to be the types of inspirations that would appeal to an 11-year-old. So first of all, I, I saw the movie The Blues Brothers a, a gazillion times. And, and I love that Lou Marini walked the bar in the Aretha Franklin scene when she sings Think. Yep. And so I just thought that was really cool. And then on the Muppets, you know, there's a saxophonist, and and I thought that was cool. And then the other inspiration for playing saxophone was my uncle. I have an, an uncle who is also a film composer, and his name is Howard Shore. And Howard plays all the saxophones and clarinet and flutes. So that was my inspiration. Like I, I, I thought that would be cool. I, at that time, I thought it was kind of a sexy instrument. But I was kind of nervous to join the band. I, I thought about it in the sixth grade, and I heard the band director was very strict, and I didn't know if I would be good enough. So I didn't actually join the band until seventh grade. And uh, and I really loved it. I just started really taking a, a liking to it. I started learning saxophone. I, I started on the alto sax and um, played in the jazz band, the concert band, and started taking up clarinet and other saxophones and flute and piano. And But it wasn't really until high school that it really kind of solidified for me. And um, I think the reason that it really connected with me, this is this might sound funny, but it's just the time in my life when when this happened was that... I, I got, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Praise, you know, like from, from other students, you know, recognition from the other band, you know, students that they were like, oh, you know, he, he, he can play a little bit. And so that, that was like a drug, you know, it, it was amazing to get that kind of affirmation. And it just came at a time in my life when that was really important. And so um, I really got into music starting in high school. Okay. And from there, did you go to a music college? Did you study privately? I mean, you've become a professional musician and a top-ranked professional musician. It doesn't just happen from playing in high school. That's true. So when I was in high school, I yeah, I was playing in all the bands, jazz band, you know, symphonic band, marching band, 
tons of stuff like that. But I also was taking private lessons on saxophone and I was taking private theory lessons. I was really seeking things out. And in the summers when I was in high school, I started going to a lot of different music programs. So I went to Jamie Abersall's jazz camps. I went to Interlochen Center for the Performing Arts. I went to Eastman School of Music and I went to Berkeley College of Music. These are all summer programs when I was in high school. So by the time that I graduated high school, Berkeley had, had, had offered me a full scholarship to go to Berkeley. And I wasn't even sure at that time if I wanted to do music full time. I was really into academics and, and the music, but I had never dedicated all of my time to just music. And, you know, because I'm in school. So I remember when Berkeley gave me the, the scholarship, I just thought, why don't I try this? It's not going to cost me anything. And, and if I, if it turns out it's not for me, then maybe I'll only be a year down and I'll, I'll go study something else. I, I, you know, entered into Berkeley. I don't ever, ever remember even thinking about that question again, about assessing whether this was for me. I, it, it, it was never a thought. I just loved it. So from that moment, that was the direction, huh? Absolutely. And just kept, you know, going at Berkeley. Okay. So I want to do the transition from there. So how did you get into the whole, all of this animated music? I mean, it's just kind of a little genre portion of film and television, but you seem to be very big there. How did that happen? So when I graduated from Berkeley, I majored in film composing, but I also was playing uh, a lot of saxophone when I was back at Berkeley. I, I think that I kind of led two lives when I was at school. Like half of my friends were in the scoring department and half were musicians, instrumentalists playing in the band. And even though I was playing a ton, I really wanted to explore a lot of different styles of music. And there were different styles that I wouldn't be able to sort of naturally explore just holding a saxophone. You know, like, like what if I wanted to check out what's in it? Like, like we were chatting about a, a, a hair rock metal band, you know, their saxophone might not be in there or an orchestra or um, atmosphere, I don't know, electronic music or a gospel choir. Like, I just wanted to try things out, you know, bluegrass music and understand what was in all these styles. And that's really what got me into film scoring was I just thought if I wanted to explore these sounds that, that I, I should write for them. Because um, I can't do it just playing the saxophone. So I was sort of leading this double life back in college. And then when I graduated, my plan was to move from Boston to Los Angeles. And my uncle Howard called me up and he offered me one day of employment. And he was living in New York City or, or in the New York area. And so I went to New York to go work for Howard for a day. And I had no idea what would come of that. And it ended up turning into four years, and I moved to New York in, instead of coming out to L.A. It was a long day, let me tell you. <laughs> it was a long day. No sleep. Four, four years straight. Four years. Wow. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic tour de force. 
How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of like never before and the ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music. And keep on rocking. You know what? I think it's time. I want to let people hear some of what you're doing here because it is different and it's for this particular area of film and television. So let's start in with the Songfest portion. And we're playing right now underneath our uh, speaking, The Legend of Muay Thai. Now, this is very orchestral. Tell me about this one. This is an animated feature film that I did a few years ago, and it was made in Thailand. And I'm so proud of this film. It has not come out in North America yet, but it has been released in Southeast Asia and many other countries. The movie is about 96 minutes long. I wrote a 96-minute orchestral score for it. It's nonstop music. And I also wrote an original song that is heard twice in the movie. And I'm particularly proud of, of how everything came out. And I'm very honored to say that I received Thailand's Academy Award for Best Score that year for this, this score. And I really wish that this movie would come out in North America so that more audiences can see it. Is it available you know, online at, that, at this point? I think it is. Um, I, I think I've looked on YouTube and there are clips or maybe even maybe even the whole film, which I'm not sure if it's allowed to be there. But um, you can find clips. If someone is interested to see it, it, it it's out there. So everything is somewhere on YouTube. It's amazing how this stuff gets True. picked up. All right, let's go to the second one. Now, this one everybody knows because it's Star Wars Forces of Destiny. The choices we make. The actions we take, moments, both big and small, shape us into forces of destiny. You did this for Disney, am I correct? Yeah, for Disney and Lucasfilm. All right, so tell us about this one. Well, this is my first Star Wars series that I scored for Lucasfilm. I was recommended to Lucasfilm from friends of mine that I'd worked with before. I loved when they called me up. They weren't able to tell me what they were working on. They just said that they were working on an animated series for Lucasfilm. And would I be interested in being recommended? And I said, of course. Yeah, that would sounds amazing. But I had no idea that it was Star Wars. They asked me to put together a reel of music that I, you know, things I'd done before. 
and they said they're looking for adventure music. And I remember thinking, boy, adventure, that, that so many things can be adventure, you know, uh, Star Wars is adventure, but so is Indiana Jones and right. so is Avatar. And so is, you know, a million other movies. And these are all very different musical styles. And so I put together a reel and they gave me an opportunity to chat with the producer of the series before I sent in the reel, but they still weren't telling me that it was Star Wars. So I, I remember asking the producer one question. And the question that I asked was, I know I'm not allowed to know anything I'm not supposed to know, but do these stories take place on earth? And, and she said, no. Oh, that was a good question. And I, and I said, oh, okay, that's all I need to know. Thank you. So I figured, okay, so not on Earth, there's a good chance it's a science fiction. And if it's Lucasfilm, it's a good chance it's going to be Star Wars. Did you feel when you were doing this that you were following in the footsteps of somebody like John Williams? Yes. Um, I mean, I was certainly uh, in in the same area that, that of scoring these types of stories and characters that, that, that he was, you know, asked to do. So, um, but I mean, it's, it's Lucasfilm also, you know, this is his area. This is his turf, so to speak, you know, between Spielberg and Lucas and you're following in that path. Yes. And by the time that I wrote this score, because Star Wars forces of destiny, I think was maybe, forgot, maybe like four years ago or, I'd have to go back and look when it was five years ago, six years ago. Um, there weren't that many composers that had followed in, in William's footsteps to write for Star Wars. There were some. There were a few. Now there are more. But at that time, there were very few composers that had ever been entrusted to write music for Star Wars. So it was incredibly, it felt very heavy, you know, to me. You know, it's like, I had there's so much tradition there there's so much legacy there's so much importance there's so many fans there's there's it's 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 an incredibly beloved property it's known worldwide multi-generations I, I felt all that pressure but when when I sat down to write you kind of have to not feel the pressure because you want to be feeling the stories I mean that's what it's all about you know when you're a composer is you've got to be feeling the story if if, if you're feeling the deadline then it's not a good place to be. So I tried to box that out. How did it work? Did you get the film and then you were asked to do your score on top of the film or did you do it together at the film? What was the sequence? Yeah, the sequence is that they make the film first and then they show that to me so that by the time I see it, it's very similar to what you would see in the final result. They might be finishing some animation, but for the most part, all the timings are locked. The story is locked. It's already been, you know, it's already been storyboarded and voiced and final voices are in. So it's it's very much like a finished type of product, although it's not fully polished. But it's missing the music. But it's missing the music. That's right. You know, I, I've talked this with a few other people on this podcast. If anyone ever had the opportunity to see a film or a television show without music and then another time with the music, it's a tremendously different experience wouldn't you agree completely different and not only is it different with or without music it's drastically different with different types of music so yes it's 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 a very interesting dynamic between music and picture 
And my background being a saxophonist is in jazz. And I've played in countless big bands and combos. And I mean, those are all of my, that's my whole background is in jazz. And in jazz, there's, uh, it's all about listening. You know, it's about listening to the other player. It's a dialogue. It's real time. Scoring for picture is similar, but different. It's similar in that there's still a form of listening involved, obviously, because you're listening to the picture, but the picture doesn't respond to you. So it's it's sort of like a one-way dialogue, but it's, you're, you're sort of using the same skills as a jazz musician because composition I find is so related to improvisation. In fact, I find, cause I came from, from jazz and improvising that I almost find in a, in a way, not that any of this is easy by the way, but I find composing to be a little easier than improvising because composing is like improvising, but you get to go, go back and correct your mistakes. There you go. So, Yeah. I mean, but think about it. You started off in the mall, not liking the background music that you're hearing as you're walking through the mall. I liked it. I just didn't know if it was needed. Oh, come on. <laughs> you, you tried to convince your brother to get rid of all music in the world. Okay. I remember these things. <laughs> and here you are, you know, you're filling in the emotions and uh, you're filling, you know, the space in all of these productions on television and in film. You've come a long way, Ryan. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's do one more. I like the name on this one. Rex Steele, Nazi Smasher. You, on the march. As the Nazi Leviathan continues to squirt black splotches of injustice all over the clean white shirts of Europe, favored relatives Uncle Sam and Lady Liberty have added their torch to their allied cousin's flickering flame. The light of hope now shines over the darkness of tyranny. An arduous task? Indubitably. But as luck would have it, Rex Steele, Nazi Stasher extraordinaire, lives on our side of the Atlantic. Recruited to blow a big raspberry into the plans of evilness by the maniacal Nazi regime, this reporter can assure you, if the smell of Nazi is in the air, Rex will be there to smash that kraut sour. Blabber them all, Rex. Tell me about Rex, the Nazi Smasher. You know, I chose this piece because I'm so proud of it. And I'm proud of it because it was the first time that I had written for a full orchestra and gotten to record it with a live orchestra. Rex Steel Nazi Smasher is an animated short film that was made at NYU based on a comic book of the same name. And the filmmakers are still among my very best friends. In fact, I I just had lunch with the director of that movie yesterday. And I'm so proud of it because I always thought that I could write for an orchestra, but I guess you don't know until you try. And so I wrote this score. I recorded it in Prague with the Czech Philharmonic and Choir. It was an 80-piece orchestra and a 30-member female choir. So it was 110 pieces and flew all the way over to Prague to go record this. I had four hours to record this score. And we recorded it like in the middle of the night. I mean, it was kind of nuts. They were in the middle of their concert season. And I wanted to record in the Rudolfinum, which is their home hall. And the contractor who books the musicians, the contractor said, yeah, we can record uh, at the hall. And I'm like, great. You know, when when are they available? They said, well, they're doing a concert on that night. But, you know, they'll finish by 10 p.m. And we can start recording at 10.30 p.m. or something. And I'm thinking, really? Like... (laughs) So you got a hundred and you got hundred and ten performers 
you have to pay overtime too, huh? <laughs> no, thankfully, no overtime. It's different, different gig. So they they're willing to do it. A different gig is right. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, you've had such an interesting career from jazz to animated, from Toronto to Boca Raton. We have been speaking here with Ryan Shore. Ryan, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been so interesting. It's been an absolute pleasure. And keep up all the great work with all of your podcasts. I'm, I'm a listener and a fan as well. I like that. And now we're going to listen to the song that started off this episode. It's my song called Cousins. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. 